Well, good morning. It's nice to see everybody somewhat up close. And I'll use the microphone, but it almost seems like I don't even need it. I just shout across the room. So, Katie was mentioning, I was passing, the song um, she wanted to sing from the hymn book was The Family of God. And it's, it's not a hymn book, so, unfortunately, just that thought. <laughs> But as we look around, I mean, this is the family of God, isn't it? As we look around and spend time together, we have a sense that we belong to the same family. And I think, like, how do you how do you get into the family of God? You know, some of us sit together with our families, who are our family, family, our children, our parents, or nephews, or cousins. We kind of like these are our people. Let's look around and see like the family of faith. And we said, these are our people, and how do you come into that family? So you came into your family by a birth. How do you come into the family of God? Well, it's by a new birth, isn't it? So Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was a religious man, and he was a good, by world standards, he was a good, good man, Nicodemus was. He said, well, surely that man is in the family of God. And all of us, one way or another, have to come into the family of God by being born again. And on several weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, I was saying, we all kind of come from a different place. Some of us come from like a very religious background, but you have to be born again. And some of us come from like a religious background, or maybe it wasn't a Christian, like another religion. You're a really good person. You have to be born again. And some people come from some really rough backgrounds. And guess what? You have to be born again. And some people maybe came from a really like, like without God, but a good family. Good family, but no God there. But you still, you have to be born again. Everyone, to come into the family of God, you have to have an interaction. You have to come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ and know Him to come into the family of God. You can't sneak in the back door. You have to have that experience. Just like the Apostle Paul did. And as far as his own experience, if anybody was good, where they could, like, as it were, sneak in the back door. Maybe the Apostle Paul could have. And he goes through this whole list of this his zeal, his enthusiasm, his place of birth. You know, Tarsus was a very cosmopolitan kind of place. It's like, you would say, hey, I'm from Tarsus. People go, ooh, nice. That's a good place to be from. I start thinking, like, in America, cities where you'd say you wouldn't want to be from, like, Oh, you're from Detroit. People kind of go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, you're from Orlando. People go, oh. Like, you know. So, you came to Tarsus, people go, oh, Tarsus. It doesn't count. And education. He's an educated person. Studied under Gamaliel. It's like, I went to Harvard. People go, oh. You know, when you say you went to Central, people go, huh, ah, all right. Thanks, okay. State school. You go, oh, from the East Coast, you know, Ivy League. People go, oh. But it doesn't cut it. 
you have to have that experience where face to face you come to see the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to have that happen. I think about Paul's experience, and I don't know if you guys have, do you ever write out a timeline of Paul's life? Do you get confused? Like, what happened when, and he went here and went there? And So, I'm going to say really briefly, here's kind of a rundown of where we met with Paul. We met Paul at the Stoning of Stephen, where he stood by and he watched the coats while people did the dirty work, but he said he approved. Then he began persecuting the church, and Mike brought that up this morning. He actively sought to destroy, imprison, torture, and kill people who are Christians. And I know it's kind of a um, youth group thing, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, to have someone come break down the door and pretend to the police and say, all the Christians, come with me, and see who's going to be faithful, like who's going to really stand it. Those things happened. Paul was the guy, but he wasn't joking and he wasn't testing. Like he actually beat down the doors and said, "Hey, who's the Christians?" And they'd raise their hands. And off to prison you go. And then this conversion of the Damascus Road, where he went from this and he crossed the line and became this. He was a persecutor, and then he became a brother. The very thing that he was trying to stamp out. He said, I'm going to go join them now. I mean, that's radical. And I don't know anything where you think to yourself, I just can't stand those people. If you watch, um, you know, you watch the news and see someone with blue hair and screaming in the police face and you think, let's just stamp that one out. Yeah, I think let's, let's stamp that one out. But imagine like turning around and all of a sudden you're one of them. How did that happen? How do you go from being this to being this? In this case, you need the Lord Jesus Christ, and He can change your life. So then Paul begins declaring that Jesus is the Christ. And for a Jew to say this, a zealous, educated Pharisee Jew to say, this man. This carpenter from Galilee, he's Messiah. He's Christ. That is a 180, a turnaround that nobody could believe. How do you go from that to this? And so people were to find out, they turn, uh, as a word, they turn their guns on him and say, okay, now you're one of them, this is going to happen to you. So he begins um, declaring and proclaiming Jesus in Damascus. And then it takes three years in Arabia. And what happened in those years? Uh, Tim did a nice job of explaining. They really don't know what happened. And we said there's some people you know who just can't not preach the gospel. <laughs> you meet someone at McDonald's and they start talking about Jesus. Or you go to work and they start talking about Jesus. To the point that maybe people stop start avoiding you. Like, I already know what he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about Jesus. And we've even had people um, at the chapel, and you know, who would say, you know, Jerry comes to mind. People would show up at chapel and be like, Hey, how'd you get here? <clears throat> oh, I met this guy at the park, Jerry. Uh, he said he goes here. <laughs> really? You just met him, and now you're here. And it seems really easy, doesn't it? I'm like, how does he do that? 
Well, some people, they just can't, they can't not talk about Jesus. So I imagine that, yes, Paul probably did a lot of praying. He probably spent a lot of time with the Lord in the Arabian Desert. Not just Saudi Arabia, but just Syrian Arabia. But I imagine he was just talking about Jesus. He just couldn't not do it. And so then, um, following his years, he returns back to Jerusalem. And that's where we find him. So he goes from Damascus to the desert, back to Jerusalem. And so we're going to read from Acts chapter 9, when he returns back to Jerusalem. So this is Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And I hope you don't mind, I am just going to read today and comment as I go. There's a lot of thoughts here that are kind of scattered a little bit, a little bit of a shotgun passage. So I'm just going to pause and continue the story as it's appropriate. But isn't that an amazing verse? When he comes to Jerusalem, he attempts to join the disciples. When you go to a new town, do you want to find the believers? Do you want to find like people who are your people? You know, something about um, Christians, we are meant to live in fellowship with one another. I think that's what we're designed and meant to do. This one book your job, first John. He says one of the signs that you have passed from death to life is that you love the brothers. And we have a love for God's people, whether here or when you're on vacation or when you're in a foreign country. Um, Dave was just asking, what do you remember about being in China? I don't know. I was just amazed. That God's kingdom transcends borders. And here we are walking around the other side of the world and thinking somehow, I don't think God cares about these borders. I think God's people have a tighter bond that transcends national boundaries. And so when Paul comes to uh, Jerusalem, he wants to find a church. And because Paul is part of the body, and we're part of the body, and we're meant to work together. And Corinthians talks about. You know, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And even the apostle can't say to the church, like, I don't need you. You know, Christ is the head, and the rest of us are the body. And none of us more essential or less essential. We're all needed in the body. And Paul knows this. And so he looks and he tries to find the disciples. And I do like that word, disciples. It doesn't say the church. It doesn't say he's finding their building, but he's looking for the disciples. You know, even up here, you know, around Yakima. I mean, are there other disciples who don't necessarily attend Tyson Drive? I mean, God is doing things in Yakima that's not just us, but there's disciples, those who are following after Jesus. And we should know, like, I think it's good for us to know the other parts of the body of Christ where we are. And you would think of be like kind of like, here's our biggest convert. And you know, throw a name out there, Stephen Hawking became a believer. He was dead, but if you can imagine that most prominent atheist became a Christian, I mean, how would we respond? We'd be like, we got one, right? Like, we just caught ourselves a big fish, and here comes a big persecutor, and now he's had the experience, he turns 
And you would think the church is going to be like, here he is. But look what happened. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Incredible, isn't it? And part of me like wants to kind of wag my finger at the first century church. I mean, shouldn't you be like having a celebration? One of the big sinners came to repentance? Wouldn't this just be a big party? I thought, but could you imagine for a second, look around the room. If someone came in here and knocked down a door and grabbed your kid and drug him off to prison, to torture to death, if someone grabbed your grandma, drag her out the door, prison, I don't know, torture, and then three years later they show up again. I mean, can you imagine looking in the face of that person? Can you imagine the Jews standing back and watching the, um, more recently, the Nuremberg trials after World War II? And thinking, I hate that person for what they did. But in the body of Christ, something amazing happens. And Mike said this morning, once in a while you're on the right, the right line. I'm going to say it. So, yeah, 2 Corinthians, anyone who is in Christ, you're a new creation. And Paul, he wasn't the old guy. He was no longer the one who was taking out and dragging Christians off or naming the name of Christ. He was now the one proclaiming the name of Christ. So, he is a new creation, but then also forgiveness in the body of Christ. Do people in the church hold a grudge? I mean, more than I care to admit. In some ways, the church can be a petty place. To our shame, we hold grudges, and these things should not be so. But you know what? It's true. And I occasionally say some of my giftings are um, like being condescending and judgmental. And we've got to fight those things, because it comes so naturally. But to forgive... I was thinking about, um, you know, Paul wrote later in Ephesians, at the end of chapter 4, he says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so yeah, to see Paul, the very one who drugged people out and imprisoned them, and to say, you know what? Yes, and I, we know who you were, but we can forgive. You are a new creation in Christ. And they were afraid Yes, and probably for good reason, and it's probably wisdom, and they probably live under a danger that we will not experience in our lifetime. But never say never. The tides are shifting fast. And we're just saying, I was talking this weekend, things have changed so much in the last three to five years, it kind of makes your head spin. And to see where we're at in the next, in the next three to five years, or ten years, don't think we'll be exempt from persecution. But in Christ, we do find forgiveness. And as a body, we do need to forgive each other, as Christ has forgiven us. And so Barnabas, someone has to stand up and say, no, this guy's with us. He has an advocate. And what is his name? Barnabas. The name Barnabas means the son of consolation. So he's a comforter. He's an advocate. 
He's the kind of guy who puts his arm around the shoulder. And I listened to several um, sermons on this passage. And almost all the pastors teaching on this said, you know, I wish we had more Barnabas in our congregation. People who instead of pointing a finger came and put an arm around the shoulder and said, you know what? He's one of us. He has value to this fellowship. And so Barnabas said to the disciples, he took him, Paul, and he brought him to the apostles and declared to them on the road how he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how in Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Verse 28, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord. So he spoke with boldness. So uh, Barnabas brought him in. He brought him in with the apostles. And we learned last week that um, Paul had a unique experience and didn't necessarily consult with the other apostles. Because his apostleship was from the Lord. It wasn't as though the apostles named him the successor to the apostles. You know, in some uh, churches, some cults, will say they have an apostolic succession. They have apostles today. If your church has an apostle today, it's probably a good cue that you're in the wrong church. So we don't have an apostolic succession. Paul had an appointment from the Lord. The Lord himself gave him his ministry. But the other apostles affirmed that his message, his gospel, that yes, this was from the Lord. It was attested to by the other apostles, by the miracles, the witnesses who had seen um, Paul's conversion. And so Paul just continued with boldness. And I think about that word, boldness. I don't know who's the bold among us. How many of us speak with clarity, with conviction about the Lord in difficult situations? And I'll be honest, it's kind of easy to have, speak with boldness in this room, because you mostly nod at me and say, yeah. You all have your Bibles open, and I can speak about the Lord, and you're all going to nod at me, you're all going to smile. But do you speak with boldness when somebody um, furls their eyebrows? Or they begin to ridicule? Do we have boldness in our places of employment where we work? Do the people who you work with, do they know that you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you think twice? Do you say, what's the least offensive way I can say this? What's the least way to ruffle feathers that I can speak about Jesus? And believe me, I'm not talking to you. If there was a mirror in front of this pulpit, this is giving me a lot of pause for consideration. Am I as bold as I need to be? And I've found over the years, people know that you're a believer. And people are just like, I know, I knew that about you. But I kind of question like, but do I say it with boldness? Or am I kind of an undercover, undercover agent as it were? And I've heard it said, you know, the um, boldness is not equal abrasiveness or rudeness or obnoxiousness. Those things have kind of a repelling quality. But you know, the gospel is offensive enough in itself. 
we can be winsome ambassadors. We can be God's agents in the places in our circle where we walk. But we can be bold. We don't need to hide from the message. We don't need to feel silly and foolish. The gospel is the power of salvation. And you can say it with clarity. And you know, it seems any questions or uh, objections people have, people have thought about these things, and there are good answers for the objections that people will have. And I'll get to this in just a moment, the next verse. But more often than not, people don't have reasons to reject the gospel. Most often it's turned to ridicule and mockery or violence. Because there's not always an answer like to the reasons for the gospel. But there are reasons for the gospel. So be bold. Be bold, church. Like we have a message that stands on its own. And it's light to the world, to the nations. So, in his boldness, it says, Paul spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. This idea of the Hellenists is very interesting. Uh, we don't talk about much about the Hellenists much anymore. Do you know? Um, do you know who the Hellenists are? You can tell your neighbor if you know. So, do you know Alexander the Great? Students, do you know Alexander? So Alexander conquered from Greece. Going eastward, he spread across the Mediterranean all the way to India and south down to Egypt, which encompasses Israel. And so the Greeks had an influence. So the Hellenists were those Jews influenced by Greek thought. So Hellenistic things are Greek things. Do you think of Greeks or Jews as having Greek thoughts? Like, hmm. So the Greek thinking had crept in and he heard his Pharisees. So the Pharisees pushed back and said, we'll have none of this Greek nonsense. The uh, Sadducees said, well, I don't know, let's hear it out. Maybe they got some things to think, things to say. So the uh, Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection, right? They get this from the Greeks. Oh, that's incredible. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees, this is like the Greek influence in Israel. And Paul's disputing with them. And some of the thoughts that uh, he's disputing. So Gnosticism, this idea like the flesh is bad and evil, and the spirit is good, and Jesus didn't come in the flesh, he was only a spirit. This is Gnosticism, and it comes out of Greek thinking. And Paul, he's disputing with this. Or the, uh, the Stoics, later in Acts, we talk about the Stoics. This is like a Greek philosophy that, you know, you need to punish your own body and be very Stoic and serious and no joy or happiness was hunker down and be serious. Well, Paul's disputing. And like I say, the Stoics. Anybody have fun this weekend? Anybody laugh? I mean, do we not have joy and laughter with each other? Like, I think there's going to be joy in heaven. I don't think we're going to be grumpy Stoics sitting in our corner being serious and just contemplating heavy things. I think there's joy. And I think the Apostle Paul, I think he suffered. I think the Apostle was a happy guy. He had the joy 
of the Lord, I think he rejoiced in spite of difficult things. We can have joy and be happy. I think God gives us joy. So, Paul disputes. But the response isn't like, you think of philosophers going to argue or debate. They say, you know what? We don't have an answer for this. So what do we do? Let's kill them. I don't like your idea. Okay, we'll just kill you. That will solve the problem. And I see more and more in our culture today, when people have ideas that don't resonate, the response, like, it's violence. It is mob rule. When people come onto college campuses to suggest something that does not fit the narrative, and I'm not even saying Christians, just people who say, this is bananas, and I'm going to say it, if it doesn't fit the narrative of craziness, there is violence and just shouting. Instead of thinking, we just turn to shouting. And pretty soon shouting, I think, turns to killing. And that's what they got to in that culture. And I don't think we're that far away from where the Roman culture and the Greek culture was 2,000 years ago. It seems like we are just on this loop. And we're kind of going back to where we were. Help us, Lord. Or come, Lord Jesus. Probably the better. Come, Lord Jesus. Give us boldness. So, as a result, the brothers, the brothers learned this. And it's an amazing point from we're afraid you now the brothers learned this and brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. So basically he got out of town. I do love when the Bible um, commentates on itself. So this is Luke's rendition of Paul. I'm going to skip ahead here to chapter 22. Paul discusses this experience for himself and he explains um, what happened. So he said, when he returned to Jerusalem, this is chapter 22 and verse 17, he explains this time what was happening. Um, he was praying in the temple. It says, he fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, that is the Lord, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Isn't it interesting? The Lord says it's time to go. He says, you've done your work here. They're not going to listen. It's time to move on. And I said, Lord, let's, let's argue with God. Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those who believed you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. I find it amazing. I always tell the Lord something the Lord didn't know. The Lord knows. And he says, it's time for you to go. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so Paul is um, going to pack up and it's time to go. And I just think a word from that, that, you know, there's a time where you need to stick it out and hunker down and do the hard work and suffer through the situation you're in. But sometimes, it takes wisdom to know, you know, I think this thing is played out. And this is just God-given wisdom to know, when is it time to stick, stick around and finish the work, and when is it time to cut bait? 
And in this case, Paul had a very clear word from the Lord. It was time to cut bait. It's time to go. God's primary mission for Paul was to go to the Gentiles. It wasn't to say Peter was going to stay in Jerusalem and be the apostle of the Jews. Paul's mission was to go out and to be the apostle of the Gentiles. And so he left. I wish sometimes I had this kind of clarity in my life. And I don't know how you are. Some of you are very decisive people and you make decisions. You just know where to go, what to do. Make a decision and you follow through. Like, I can't decide things. Like, I sit on things and I stew on things. I wish God would give me this kind of clarity. But this word, just having a word from the Lord, I'm Think about decision making. I'm not sure God nudges us or prompts us in this kind of way where we wish God had clarity. But I think sometimes God gives us a God-given desire to do something. And perhaps if you want to do something that is in alignment with God's revealed word, his design, his desire for the nations, if he says go and you have a desire, I say go and do it. You know, unless you have a reason not to. If God puts it on your heart and you want to, go and do that thing. If you feel like, you know, I no longer have a heart for this. And don't be hasty. You know, like, you come to a point like this is no longer my heart is at and God is no longer like giving me a desire. Maybe it's time to see where does God want you to serve? What ministry does God have for you to do? And I've come to the conclusion as well in my life. I don't think God's ministry for me is sitting on my couch and relaxing and putting my feet up. And I don't think that's God's ministry for you. And ministries change. But I think God wants you to do something. And in different phases of life, it's so good to hear yesterday. We're in different places. You don't know people. You don't have ties. You can go and do things. And those of us with families, like, you know, I think our families, perhaps our ministry in this season, as we send our kids out into the world, you know, talking about Jonah going off into the world, you know, and that's wonderful. Like, on the one hand, it kind of pains us a little bit, you know, like our kids are going. But at the same time of joy, we can say, go. If God's giving you a pursuit, Lord, yeah, go and serve. And those of you in latter years, you know, you have grandchildren, and you have children who still need you. You they don't say it. You know, like, we all these ministers in different seasons, and I think that's good, and I think it's part of God's plan. So Paul goes back to Tarsus. And so finally, back to verse, or back to uh, chapter 9, in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. This was actually a little bit funny. Some of the preachers said, so when your troublemaker leaves and your church is at peace, what do you think of that? Paul leaves and all of a sudden things are going smooth. Like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Like, was Paul the church troublemaker? <laughs> like, I don't know. But no, the Lord moved him on. And the church had peace. And is this a good thing? 
for the church to have peace in the world? I mean, do we need to be at odds with the culture we're in? Yes. You know, we should be moving against the tide of our culture. I don't know that we need to go and look for conflict, but I do think God gives the church seasons of peace. Paul was there, I think, for a season of stirring up. And then God called Paul elsewhere. And there's a season of peace. And I kind of arrived, I think, you know, it's probably a good thing. You know, Paul did, he stirred things up. He moved the church into boldness. Now there's a season of peace. But then the church was built up in Paul's absence. And this is kind of a good thing, too, when that... um, Church becomes so dependent on one person that when they leave, the church falls apart. Like, this is not a good thing. So Paul leaves, there's peace. The church is being built up. They are walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And the church multiplied. I like that it said the uh, church doesn't necessarily add Especially in the early years, it multiplies. You know, if each of us were to do the work of evangelism, each of us brought ten people next week. It would be ten times our size, and ten times. It'd be awesome. Um, I don't know that it always works that way. Uh, Sometimes, we just hold faithful. We're faithful where we're at, and we're just add a little piece at a time. So, this is where Paul leaves us. So, this thing is a final thought. For yourself, do you know that you've come to that spot where you've had an interaction, you've had an encounter with the Lord Jesus? Has it changed? Changed your life? And you could say, before Jesus it was this, afterwards, I'm somebody new. Do you have a pursuit? Is God calling you to do something here? Whatever your little sphere of influence is, are you doing the thing that God's called you to do? And this is the church. Do we have that unity where maybe someone was once like the enemy and now we call them part of the family? And do we have that sense that this is, this is our family of faith? Whether little, this little reunion right here, or we get the larger body of Christ around the world. So I'm going to pray, and we'll sing some songs together, and then we'll close. So Lord, we are thankful for the light of the Apostle Paul. We do think of his boldness. We're thankful this for the way that you just intervened in his life and turned his zeal that was against you and yet you took that zeal, that enthusiasm Lord, you used it for your purpose and we're beneficiaries of that very thing today and Lord we just want to ask you to give us boldness whatever our little bubble is give us boldness in interactions with family, co-workers friends, strangers Lord, just move in our hearts to give us boldness to speak and to proclaim the Lord Jesus.
So we just um, ask you to bless our time of song together. And we just thank you in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.